This is Bloomberg Business Week. I'm Carol Masser. And I'm Jason Kelly. We're right here every day bringing you the latest news from the worlds of business and finance. Plus technology, politics, economics, all harnessing the power of Business Week reporters and editors. And of course, Carol, that's part of a team of 2,700 journalists and analysts in more than 120 countries. And Jason, you can download Bloomberg Business Week on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Bloomberg.com. You can also listen to our radio show at 2 p.m. Eastern on Bloomberg Radio every weekday. Or watch us on YouTube by searching Bloomberg Global News. You know, it came up earlier, Carol, one of our producers was saying, where are we on on the virus? It feels Mm -hmm. like, you know, there are a lot of headlines out there. Lucky for us, we have the perfect person to actually answer that question. Totally. And not just me babbling on being like, well, this is what I read and this is what a chart I think means. Dr. Susan Bailey, she is president of the American Medical Association, joining us again on the phone from Fort Worth, Texas, fairly newly minted into that role. She's an allergist and an immunologist, perfectly suited for these times. So, Dr. Bailey, really nice to have you back with us. First of all, tell us what it's like in Texas right now. Well, it's great to be back, and other than it being hotter than a jalapeno down here, uh, <laughs> our COVID cases have really stabilized, um, which is just great news. Our case numbers are uh, the number of new cases per day, I should say, is decreasing. Uh, the numbers of hospitalizations are down. The numbers of deaths are down. Uh, the Rio Grande Valley is still uh, a hot spot for sure. But um, we um, seem to be managing um, this um, surge well and are, you know, gearing up for cold and flu season ahead. Which means what, Dr. Bailey? And first of all, nice to have you back with us. But what does that mean as we gear up for the fall and winter months? I think that, that we need to be very concerned about having a flu outbreak uh, and a COVID resurgence in the winter at the same time. Mm. Um, We always have cold and flu season. December, January typically is when that peaks. Uh, Doctor's offices fill up, hospitals fill up. um, And if we've got COVID on top of that, we run the risk of overwhelming our healthcare services again. So the AMA is urging everyone over the age of six months to be sure and get a flu shot this fall. And are we at all worried? And and I'm not saying this to be alarmist. I'm worried. I'm asking just because I, I genuinely don't know. Are we at all worried about supply of the traditional flu vaccine, or are we in pretty good stead with that? We're in good shape this year. Uh, influenza vaccine manufacturers have made a, a special push to make sure that there is plenty of vaccine on hand. Uh, There's lots of different types of flu vaccines. Um, The biggest concern that I have is that people may not get the flu vaccine the same way they've gotten it in the past Mm -hmm. because if they're working from home, their employers may not offer it like they have. Um, If they've gotten it in their doctor's office, they may not just be able to drop by because of of COVID um, limitations on, you know, physical distancing. So they might have to make an appointment. So people are going to need to be a little bit more proactive this year in terms of making sure they get their flu shot, but there's going to be plenty available. Well, Dr. Bailey, I've thought about that and I've already, you know, kind of reached out to my doctors and as a family, we've been thinking about that, but you know how people can be just proactively in terms of generally taking care of their health care. And I do wonder, do we as a nation once again need to kind of come together 
together and have a national policy and a national initiative, I don't know, do you set up buses that are offering, you know, or, or some kind of setup, you know, in centers where you can go and get your flu vaccine and it's either at a disc, it's easily done so the majority of the population gets it because this will benefit the population overall. You know, I really think we need to be creative um, and, you know, outlets that may not have offered flu vaccines in the past uh, might be doing that this year. Um, <clears throat> I know my church has given flu vaccines uh, in the past. I don't know if they'll be doing it this year because they're still not having in-person worship services. So it's uh, yeah. important to, uh, you know, check your pharmacies, check your grocery right. store, check your public health centers. Boy, um, they'll be out there, though. Yeah, I wonder about, I think about the Walmart story, Jason, right? You know, about Walmart wanting to be a bigger player on the right. healthcare stage, clinics, whether yeah. they can really step up and help with something like Absolutely. this. Absolutely. Um, well, speaking of churches, makes me think of schools. Uh, talk to us about what's happening as we get closer and closer to reopening. I say closer to reopening here in the Northeast. I'm imagining there are some school districts down where you are that are reopened. What does it look like? It is uh, a real mixed bag. Uh, there are some school districts that um, are starting to reopen, some that are waiting until late, later in the fall. Um, the CDC has said recently that really uh, low community transmission of the COVID virus is really the number one thing you need to look at when you're thinking about uh, safely reopening your schools. Um, children have to be able to wear masks. They have to be able to physically distance, which is really one of the biggest challenges in schools because, obviously, um, there's not that much space available. Right. And um, so we, every community um, has their own um, <clears throat> way of looking at this, and I think it needs to be done in conjunction with local health authorities to look at how much spread is there in the community, how will the students be able to, to learn in a safe environment? You are listening to Bloomberg Business Week. Jason Kelly, Carol Master here with you. Still with us, Dr. Susan Bailey, president of the American Medical Association. And before we talk about the convalescent plasma, I did want to ask you one question, Dr. Bailey, that came across uh, our screens today and something that <laughs> cuts very close to home for me because I am currently finishing up quarantine because I live in New York and I went to a hotspot that was named a hotspot while I was there. The CDC apparently over the last 24 hours has said two-week quarantine after traveling to a hotspot, not necessary. The tri-state area, they're sticking with it for now. What's your take on that? I believe that the, the CDC feels that the uh, the pace of new cases um, is going down in many of the previous hotspots, and that um, and that that type of quarantine is no longer necessary. We have more testing now that's available, and uh, I'm hoping that it's just an overall sign that we're starting to see a little bit of relief uh, in the pandemic. So you feel so? Where do you feel like we are in this entire process? Like we were talking yesterday, and you know, following a headline or story that says, you know, from start to finish, this is probably going to be a two-year process for us to really get beyond COVID-19, especially if you look at the Spanish flu and, you know, what we've seen um, before. Do you agree? And so are we kind of halfway or close to halfway through? Oh, gosh, it's so hard to put this on a timeline. 
Um, I, I do think that we're holding our own um, against the coronavirus right now. We have not defeated it, but it has not defeated us. And I think that the real um, indicators of how well uh, we've got this virus under control for now is what happens with school openings. Um, if we're able to open schools um, safely for the most part, um, I'll be very encouraged. Um, but it's also, I think, a sign that it's incredibly important that we continue to wear our masks, wash our hands, and keep our distance from others because I think that's what's really helping turn the tide. But in terms of when we get a vaccine or other types of, of medications and therapeutics to help, uh, gosh, there, you know, it's so hard to, to set a date for that. Um, we may, COVID may be around forever, um, but if we get a good vaccine, we'll be able to get it under control. And so in the meantime, convalescent plasma, uh, we all learned that term or certainly it sort of got much more into the mainstream discussion over the past 48 hours or so. Some of us had sort of heard tell of it. What do you make of it? Because I feel like the FDA said one thing, then walked it back. How should we be thinking about this as a treatment? Convalescent plasma has been used for infectious diseases for, gosh, 100 years and uh, we call it passive immunity in the immunology business. Uh, it's one way to give people antibodies that can't make them or haven't made them themselves. Um, we've been using convalescent plasma uh, all along during the pandemic, and uh, the Mayo Clinic has been one of the major um, uh, practices that has been gathering um, a tremendous amount of data about this. And the FDA over the weekend um, gave what we call emergency use authority, EUA, for the use of convalescent plasma. Um, there were some that were concerned that the data that Mayo presented really didn't, um, uh, was um, not ready for prime time. This data hasn't been peer-reviewed and, and published yet, and it's observational data, meaning it's not really a controlled study. Um, so, but emergency use authority just means that it's going to be a little easier for doctors to prescribe it. Um, it's not, um, it hasn't, it's not final approval. And I don't think there's anyone that thinks that it is, uh, you know, the magic bullet. It's just one tool that we have in our toolbox. Uh, but it does highlight the importance of uh, the science. Yeah. Uh, understanding the science very carefully um, and not politicizing what should be medical and scientific decisions. And I do feel like it's just a reminder that there are some existing, you know, strategies, methods, treatments out there that have approval that hopefully can help us along um, in this process. So it's like we have to look at everything that's out there that we already know about. Um, Dr. Bailey, thank you so much. Jason and I were delighted to have you here. Dr. Susan Bailey, president of the American Medical Association, on the phone from Fort Worth, Texas. Uh, and of course, Jason, it always makes you happy when you get a little Southern accent, doesn't it? Absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> Just, you know, a little bit of that, a little update on Texas. Gentility. Glad to hear things going a little bit better down there. You're listening to Bloomberg Business Week with Carol Masser and Jason Kelly on Bloomberg Radio. <laughs> Sorry. You were that listening was nothing to about the, There was Business nothing about Week. us. I just, <laughs> you know, sometimes working from home, like I'm stretching and I'm just like, ugh. Yeah. 
just working it out here as we start the second stretching. hour Hence of the this Tuesday out. edition. <laughs> little neighing there from Jersey City. All right. Uh, let's get into some Bloomberg economics, some Business Week economics right now. Economics certainly front and center, totally. although you wouldn't necessarily know it if you were looking at the conventions the last couple weeks. Let's talk about that and much more with Rhea Thomas. She is an economist at Wilmington Trust. Joining us on the phone from Philadelphia. Rhea, really nice to have you with us. Thank you for having me. All right. So what is the state of the economy right now? If you look at the markets, and we know the market's not the economy, certainly the U.S. equity markets, things seem to be going great, setting records, yet we see the jobless claims. What's a real look at the economy? What does the data, what do the data tell us? I think what the data is telling you, uh, as you said, um, you know, the economy is not the market. And the underlying story in the economy is one uh, where we have a ways to go to come back to where we were in pre-COVID times. Um, And I think what the economy is going through right now brings to mind the sort of image of the parting of the seas. Um, You have these two huge walls of wide water on either side, and the economy is trying to make its way down this middle uh, this dry path to get to the other side where we have a vaccine that's widely available where, you know, demand returns to normal. Um, but you've had to have these enormous forces kind of holding off downward pressures on the economy, and that's the Fed on the one side and fiscal policy on the other side. Um, and the Fed's been really effective, and it was swift in acting, and it's uh, saved off any type of financial market crisis. Um, and fiscal policy has been uh, wonderful in terms of being able to support consumer uh, recovery as well as uh, support small businesses. But we are seeing some wavering on that fiscal side, and um, it is a worry in terms of thinking about consumer spending going forward, which, of course, is really crucial for the recovery, given that it accounts for 70% of GDP. All right. So, Ria, so when we as observers, as voters come election uh, in November, when we're listening to the economic policies or lack thereof of the presidential candidates, um, what do we need in terms of whoever lands back in the White House or who lands in the White House come November? What do we need in terms of the types of policies that you think will be the best for the economy and really impact the most positively? Sure. Um, I think really what's crucial, and even before the election, we'll really need to see um, some additional congressional action to support uh, the incomes of the unemployed. Um, We know that the uh, $600 per week unemployment insurance benefit has expired as of July, um, and that was really crucial in terms of supporting that consumer spending rebound. Um, And if you look at those that lost their jobs in the top 20% of income earners, um, those benefits uh, did support less than half a month of spending. So consumers don't have that much of a cushion. And if you look at the bottom 80% of income earners that lost their jobs, the boost that came from those unemployment insurance, it supported about one and a half months of typical uh, spending for a family of four, but really doesn't provide that much more of cushions. We don't have um, very much longer that some of these unemployed can really uh, maintain their spending. um, And that's really going to be crucial in the near term. So I think support for unemployment insurance benefits is going to be one of the key ones, as well as support for um, small businesses in terms of an extension of the PPP program for some of these companies that need additional funds to kind of uh, have that bridge until demand can fully recover. So those are policies in the near term that will really be important. 
So, Ray, I'm, I'm glad you brought up the expiration of those benefits because I feel like certainly from a political rhetoric perspective, but also from an investor and a market uh, rhetoric perspective, we heard a lot of big warnings about when those disappear, w- we could see some economic Armageddon to some extent. Have we or do we just not have the information yet that would tell us whether we have? We don't have the detailed information just quite yet. We have seen the high-frequency indicators that, you know, economists have had to turn to um, that don't have a long track record. Those have indicated some plateauing in spending um, so far. And you've heard from companies as well. You've heard Walmart mention that um, they they did see that spending was really boosted by these types of benefits, and they expect um, kind of a slower pace of recovery going forward. So I think that that, um, from the high-frequency side, that's what we've seen. the latest data we have from the official statistics is as of July and retail sales, and those unemployment benefits accounted for about 15% of retail sales when you try and scale how much that accounted for. Um, so we, we do expect that August will really be the month where you'll get a clearer picture of what happens once we've seen those uh, benefits kind of fall off. Hey, Ria, if we can, just one quick uh, last question. You t- said about extending PPE for small business. You mentioned unemployment benefits. That's kind of smart policies that we need in the in the short term uh, and the near term. Just got about a minute here. Longer term, what are the policies that we need in whoever sits in the White House come 2021? Um, I think there are going to be a number of policies in place. And again, it'll depend on how far we are um, in the recovery and where the virus is um, in terms of what kind of takes uh, front stage when whoever comes into the new uh, White House. But um, I think tax policy will be really important. And depending on who we get in the White House, we could see an increase in taxes. That could potentially weigh on the outlook. But on the other hand, if the virus is still kind of driving the economy, we could see additional spending to bolster the economy. And that could, you know, uh, further spur the economy. Um, So changes in tax policy, changes in regulation, um, and I think trade relations with China, those will be the key policies to watch out for. Interesting. Yeah, that trade piece is going to be one to watch for sure because we know it's going to change. It's either going to ramp up or scale back uh, dramatically one way or the other is most uh, people's anticipation. All right. Rhea Thomas, thank you so much. Economist for Wilmington Trust joining us on the phone from Philadelphia. Carol? Yeah. Interesting, right? But I just think these are things we need to be thinking about as voters. It's so easy to be caught up in the theatrics yes. of campaigning, even in a virtual world, and that you really need to be thinking about the policies. My husband and I always kid that we need to have a debate where you cannot make fun of or criticize your opponents. You just have to talk about policies and what you would do. Think about how that would change, right? You'd really understand what a candidate stands for. You can't just pick on the other yeah. candidates. Here's what I stand for. Here's what I would do. And I think- Conventions would be a lot shorter. They would be very different, right? <laughs> and probably not as entertaining, but yeah. you know, this is what you're voting. Why you pick a person is because of what they stand for and what they will do um, Well, theoretically. Their tenure. I mean, well, that's, that's that you, true. You hope. they hope. Uh, to do. I'm, I'm not sure that that's how people actually do it. <laughs> You're listening to Bloomberg Business Week with Carol Masser and Jason Kelly on Bloomberg Radio. So safe to say it was the necklace seen around the world. Former First Lady Michelle Obama in her speech at the DNC last week wearing a custom-made necklace. It spelled out V-O-T-E, vote. And in this week's edition of Bloomberg Business Week's Small Business Survival Guide, we take a look at the designer and small business owner behind it all. She is jewelry designer Shari Cuthbert, and she joins us on the phone from Miami along with our own Bloomberg News editor, Dimitra Kessanides, on the phone in New Jersey. Dimitra, I got to 
to say, when Jason and I are kind of reading in, there are certain rabbit holes that we fall into. And this was one for me because I was just checking out Shari's <laughs> website um, for a long time before our show. Anyway, set the scene for us um, and why you wanted to reach out to her. Well, I mean, I think I discovered it the way a lot of other people did. I was watching the convention. I heard Michelle Obama's speech. I myself didn't notice the necklace, but I think within um, less, you know, less than 24 hours later, two friends on Facebook had posted that they ordered the necklace. And I was like, huh, wow, okay, I wonder, I wonder what, you know, who the lucky business person is behind this, this business that, you know, got this great exposure um, given Michelle wearing it. And so I just poked around and saw, you know, where people were ordering it from. Then I did go down the rabbit hole of looking at all the great jewelry designs, and I was like, oh, I want that and that and that and that. Um, (laughs) Well, let's bring in Shari, because I did the same thing, and Jason, you're going to have to check this out for your wife, because I think Jen would love this as well. Shari, just what was, first of all, the initial reach out to you to do something for Michelle Obama? Um, Hi, everyone. Um, Hi. Her stylist, Meredith Coop, reached out to us uh, via email. We had no idea. It wasn't anything arranged. She just kindly wanted to find out how quickly we could get a a necklace made. Um, And once we confirmed who it was for, obviously, we got it done immediately. (laughs) And uh, that was it. I mean, we got it out that day, and we didn't know what was going to happen next. We just knew that she had it. And so tell us about, because as I understand it, you're – your mom called you, right? Yes. Um, a little clip of her of uh, Mrs. Obama's speech er, aired earlier on CNN, and my mom had somehow seen it and zoomed all the way in. I didn't even know what I was looking at when she sent it. She was just so excited. And then I was like, Mom, what is that? <laughs> and she was like, it, she's wearing your necklace. Uh, so I went online and I found the clip of the speech, and it was, it was just an incredible moment just knowing that she was wearing it with a piece of ore is what an honor. But we didn't know, I was, didn't realize she was going to wear it for the speech itself during the DNC. So how prepared or not were you for what happened next? Not prepared. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, um, I don't think anybody is prepared for that. Even if we had, we had planned ahead, knowing that she might have worn the necklace, I don't think anybody would have, I don't think we could have anticipated the, the reaction that happened. Um, I didn't think it would convert to sales. That wasn't something I'd ever dreamed of. Um, so we just took it. We got on the phone that night. My, myself and my uh, director of operations, Shivali, got on the phone. We just started planning. And we've hired, I think, six people since then. So we've, we've just, we're just doing as much as we can. So, Demetra, come on in. I'm wondering if you have a question uh, while we're on air for Shari. Yeah, I mean, I you know what what we've chatted about a little bit was just how you then. I mean, they hired six people. That was one of my questions because it was like, how do you deal with this onslaught? But um, you know, is there a way to just? Uh, it, it was a tough year. Did it completely turn things around for the business in terms of how this year was going? Because you know, this, this is a, you know a business that was an e-commerce business, but they were very hands-on. They would all work together, so they did have to shut down. Things were challenging, and suddenly this happens. And can a year that's maybe not going to be a great year, or maybe even be a really bad year? I don't really know. But can it? You know, what happened? Did it suddenly dawn on you that like 
okay, you know, there's all this stuff, but also we're going to be okay as a business. Like, was there that realization? A hundred percent. And in the very beginning, when everything started to shut down, we were a little worried about how we were going to operate and how we were going to continue. I mean, for me, the most part was I have five employees at the well, had five employees at the time, and just being able to provide for them was my first concern. Um, about a couple of weeks into everything, um, Black Li- the Black Lives Matter movement happened. And as a Black-owned business, we got a lot of attention, which we were really grateful. We we never really ever put out, you know, that we're um, I'm, that I'm a Black founder. So that was a lot of amazing attention. That definitely helped during that time. Um, we were definitely starting to turn things around. And then Mrs. Obama wore the necklace. And 100%, we have the fact that we can now hire so many more people and actually start to project for the rest of the year what could potentially happen is is, is amazing. I can't even, this is one in a lifetime opportunity. So yeah. we're grateful, so grateful and so excited for all of the opportunities and even just this call. I mean, this is amazing for us. All right. I do have to ask you before we let you go, Shari, about the underlying message in all this, because your necklace came with a message. It's not partisan. Uh, it is nonpartisan in many ways, but it's something we talk about all the time is important to us. And I know it's important to you and that's vote. A hundred percent. It's it, like you said, we're nonpartisan. All we want people to do is show up and vote. It's not even about voting um, for one or president or, the, or one potential president or the other. It's about what's happening on a local level who your representatives are, and people miss that sometimes. I think it's really important for people to know what's happening in their own cities and how these um, representatives affect us. So they need to go out and vote. Make your voice heard. We have that opportunity. Why not take advantage of it? All right, so Jason ended with a deep question. I'm going to ask with a shallow question. Was it gold? Was it small or large letters? And was it 16 or an 18-inch chain? Just quickly. It's an 18-inch chain, 14-carat yellow gold, large letters. Okay. I needed to know. It's. <laughs> I have to say, it, I love. I'm in love with her website. I'm in love, and I'm in love with what she did, and that we had this conversation because it is ultimately about getting out to vote. I'm just going to say that, Jason. It is. You're right. <laughs> You're right. Our thanks to Sherry Cuthbert, owner of By Sherry, on the phone with us, along with Demetra Kessenies, editor of Bloomberg Businessweek. Check out that story and many others on the Small Business Survi- Survival Guide at Businessweek.com. Bloomberg. I'm driving in my car. I turn on the radio. How about you let me drive? Oh, no, 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 no. Who's gonna drive you home? Honey, please, I'll do the driving. Drive on. Excuse me, I want to drive. Just drive, baby. It's the question that drives us. The drive to the close. That funky music will drive us till the dawn. On Bloomberg Radio. It's time for the drive to the close. Back with us is Aaron Kennan, co-founder, chief executive officer of Clear Harbor Asset Management. Looking after about $800 million. He joins us on the phone from Stamford, Connecticut, sort of on the other side of Westchester County from where I am, the east side. I'm on the west side. Uh, Aaron, really nice to have you back with us. What's your world like right now? How are things going? Well, um, thanks for having me back, Jason uh, and Carol. 
what is my world like? Well, we moved our headquarters from Manhattan to Stanford, Connecticut. So this is the first time I'm speaking with you from yeah. or, uh, ah. from Connecticut. So that that's big news from a Clear Harbor perspective. But we're still still doing uh, the same thing, and that is working very closely with our clients, which tend to be families and endowments, uh, smaller endowments, uh, focused on. Uh, wading through this crisis, uh, but also wading through their own personal financial lives. Um, yeah. As much as the market is volatile, the beat goes on for, for every everyone. And um, we have clients that we were on the phone with this week that were dealing with uh, sending a loved one to assisted living or mm. uh, planning for, for college uh, or uh, should they build that or buy that house in the country. Uh, people who live, for example, in the city are, are pondering what life is like and going back to school and sending their kids back to school and, and should they consider private school. And so th- there, there's that all is, is happening in my world right now. And, of course, focusing on markets and, yeah. and what's happening on uh, with the Fed and, and the overall economy and asset allocation. So lots of variables happening. Yeah. So I I do want to talk about the markets, but but if you don't mind, I, I'd love to ask you a little bit more about that move from Manhattan to Stanford. Tell us a little bit about the the decision there, and and how much of this was ultimately pandemic driven. Right. Yeah. So uh, I co-founded the company eleven years ago. Uh, we were right in Midtown Manhattan, right at Grand Central Station. Mm-hmm. Loved it. I do live in Connecticut, but I actually did enjoy the commute. Um, but I, I have to say, uh, when, when polling the uh, entire uh, membership of the firm uh, about the idea of, of using a subway or taking Metro North or the PATH train or the Long Island Railroad um, uh, or just walking through Grand Central, th- th- there weren't too many hands that were raised. Mm-hmm. And so I uh, looked at the writing on the wall there and uh, really wanted to get the band back together uh, and thought this would be the, the quickest and most expeditious uh, and efficient way to do it. And so we are here. Um, not everyone is here every day, uh, but there are more people here than we would otherwise have in New York, and I think that's really important from a collaboration perspective. Yeah, I wonder, too, as you talk to, and we'll get into kind of the investment outlook, but we're intrigued by this because we do feel like, Aaron, we're talking, Jason and I, to more and more business owners like yourself who've had offices in New York and hearing about people who are kind of rolling it up and uh, moving outside the city or just doing it virtually longer term. Um, What are you hearing from other folks, you know, colleagues, peers uh, that you talk to in the financial community? And elsewhere. Well, yeah, I think, um, you know, I was just chatting with someone this morning. They're told they're not going back until July of 2021 uh, at the earliest. So, you know, sort of make your plans as, as you will, um, as you wish. And um, there are other large financial institutions that are, you know, rolling back uh, plans or rolling out plans, but but even in a, at a slower pace than they were uh, considering a month or two ago. I will say I, I love New York City. I think it's the greatest city in the world. I've lived in London. I've lived in Tokyo. I've lived in Hong Kong. Um, New York City is always uh, in my heart, and frankly, it'll always be part of Clear Harbor. So um, I, I think it, it it's not going away uh, as much as uh, some uh, folks uh, believe it, it could mm-hmm. dissipate in, in its level of importance. Yeah, it's interesting. Um, I, I'm familiar with the project. A, a buddy of mine is, is working on it uh, there in Stanford, down by the waterfront. And you know, it's really keyed on this notion that there is a proximity that you want to New York City, but the proximity also to where your people are, and and it's a burgeoning place. So uh, interested to, a- to hear absolutely. your perspective. Yeah, there's there's a lot of great idea generation happening out here. As you know, some of the big hedge fund managers have right. been out here for for a long, long time, and uh, we are we're happy to be here and we look forward to uh 
to working from this location going forward. Right, strategically positioned too in terms of kind yeah. of New York Metro, right? You exactly. Can, it's easy accessible if you have to come to the city or you have to travel. Like it's all here, well, but it even does just give you that flexibility. The, I mean, this is Absolutely. a very specific thing, yeah. but like the the fact that you're there by a, a major train station that not only mm-hmm. has Metro North but Amtrak uh, as well. All right, well, so there's your ad for Connecticut real <laughs> estate in the uh, in the Greater Stamford area, um, <laughs> brought to you by us. Uh, but Aaron, you know, one of the things we're about to uh, catch up uh, in the the next little bit with one of of our uh, top political analysts, and she's going to tell us about what's going on at the RNC this week. We had the DNC last week. We are at that point where smart investors really are starting to think about presidential politics. What's your read at this moment? I think, um, you know, there are a couple of schools of thought. One is two weeks ago, everyone said uh, President uh, Biden for sure. Uh, And and now we're heading into, uh, you know, know, Vice President Biden will win. Now we're heading into this week and uh, polls are tightening. Mm-hmm. I think the national polls have always been sort of useless to look at. So you want to look at these these key battleground state polls like Minnesota, Wisconsin, uh, Pennsylvania, which will be tough for uh, President Trump because Biden uh, does uh, proclaim that he hails from, from uh, the Scranton area. Um, uh, Florida's closer uh, than anticipated. So you know, those polls will be important, but the messaging will be important, too. Um, and uh, I, I, I think, you know, real questions when it push comes to shove around, you know, how the leadership currently has dealt with the COVID crisis is going to weigh on voter sentiment. I think the question, too, about to what extent uh, that sort of swing voter that leaned toward Trump in 2016 will continue leaning in that direction, or does Biden sort of represent that blue-collar, folksy, um, you know, uh, you know, very sort of, in some sense, polar opposite of the Hillary Clinton uh, personality yeah. approach. And are we more comfortable with, with him? One, one person once told me that, you know, if you can envision yourself having a beer with the individual running for president at a pub for an hour, there's a good chance you'd vote for that person. And so, you know, maybe people will subconsciously be asking themselves this question as they uh, just prior to entering the polls. Well, that certainly seemed like part of what the Democrats were trying to portray last week in terms of how they were framing uh, their candidate. Really good to catch up with you. Uh, Thanks for going with us down that rabbit hole into uh, location and geography. It's a really important conversation that that we're continuing to have. And we know that, you know, from the feedback that we're getting, that a lot of our listeners are thinking about that as well. So uh, it's clearly an important topic. Aaron Kennan, co-founder, chief executive officer of Clear Harbor Asset Management, joining us from his new headquarters in Stamford, Connecticut. Listen, I think there's going to be a lot of surveying of various totally. workforces, right? And saying, okay, guys, here's what we do, you know. And if you've got the majority of workers who are like, I'm just not comfortable. This is where I am. Then you got to figure out, okay, i got to make plans, right? Yep. As somebody who runs a company. So yeah. um, great to check in with him. Thanks so much for listening to Bloomberg Business Week. Download the podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, or wherever you get your podcasts. And, of course, you can always listen to our radio show at 2 p.m. Eastern on Bloomberg Radio or watch us on YouTube by searching Bloomberg Global News.